If you like this podcast, you're going to really like McClanahan Academy. Head over to McClanahanAcademy.com. That's McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll. It's free of charge. You get a free class, 10 Myths of American History. When you do enroll, I've got nearly 20 classes there available for purchase. Go to McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll today and get a real history education. The Brian McClanahan Show, episode 665. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to the Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, like my Facebook page, and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. If you're watching at YouTube, click on that little heart underneath the video, the super thanks button. If you like the video, you can throw a few pennies my way that way. You can also go to brianmcclanahan.com, B-R-I-O-N, mcclanahan.com. Click on the support tab. You can throw a few pennies my way that way. The best way, though, is to go to mcclanahanacademy.com. Always free to enroll. Get that free class 10 Myths of American History when you do enroll. And, of course, you can purchase one or 20 of my classes there. Then you get great content and you keep this podcast free of charge. You can also click on the shop tab where you're at brianmcclanahan.com. And also while you're at brianmcclanahan.com, give me that email address. I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, free audiobook of the same title read by yours truly. And you're on my email list, and therefore you get coupons at McClanahan Academy. And I will have another class coming out this month. So you're going to look forward to that, July of 2022. It's going to be an awesome class. The title is Copperheads. So we're talking about Lincoln's opponents. So we had just had a class on Lincoln. We're going to get one on Lincoln's opponents, which is going to be just downright awesome. So look for that coming out later this month. And as always, rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. Let people know you're thinking locally and acting locally. Share it around on social media. Send me those show requests. Do all you can to support the show. Okay, well, let's talk about the topic of the day, and it's the Supreme Court. And I say it's the Supreme Court because I'm going to read a little piece, a little op-ed by Ezra Klein at the New York Times. came out uh, yesterday, I believe, as I'm recording this. So uh, Ezra Klein, of course, if you don't know, he's a far lefty. He's the founder of Vox which is an idiotic website, but um, every now and then they have good podcast fodder. And Ezra Klein has a piece that came out in the New York Times opinion section on the Supreme Court. What's amazing to me about the left and the Supreme Court today is how they've all figured out, just all decided now, that the Supreme Court is a policy arm of the federal government. At least they've known this for years, but they figured out this may not be a good thing because it's not working in their favor. You see, from the 1960s, until, say, the early 2000s, the Supreme Court worked in their favor most of the time. But really beginning uh, with the uh, Bush presidency and then moving into the Obama presidency, the court has not always sided with their agenda. Now, it really ramped up, though, in the last four years. And that's because for the first time in a long time, Republicans essentially control the court and they don't like it. In fact, this is the first time really since, uh, my gosh, maybe since the 20th century that the left has not controlled the court on a regular basis. And so they're trying to figure out what to do about this. You see, the Supreme Court was never designed to be a policy arm of the federal government. And of course, that's what it's become. And it's become that because of the left, not because of the right, not because of conservatives. It is a policy arm of the federal government. And what I find laughable is all the time these leftists try to uh, talk about how the right has controlled the court. The right has created all these horrible things. The right has done all this. In reality, the entire apparatus of the leftist political agenda has only been able to survive because of the Supreme Court. Most of the time, 
people don't want these policies. In fact, Americans on a regular basis vote down wokeism. They don't like it. When they can actually vote, it goes the other way. Uh, you look at many of the left's agendas. I mean, take a state like California, which actually prohibited affirmative action. So when the people of the states get involved, they vote down the stupidity. But then the courts get involved, and so, of course, the courts have to go in and change things. And this is the funniest thing about the left. They all talk about democracy and wanting the, wanting the people to decide. But when the legislatures get involved, that's a bad idea, so we need the courts to do it. When the people, through referendum and, and, and uh, initiative, get involved, ballot initiatives, that's a bad idea because that's the people, right? So we need the courts to do all these things. So Ezra Klein spends a long time in this piece talking about what we can do to reform the court. Now, I find his piece pretty balanced. He doesn't favor court packing, in fact. Um, he favors some other reforms that I think are ridiculous. In fact, the really the only thing to do here with all of this, when you talk about the court, is state interposition. It's always federalism. You want people to not fight about the court? Well, take the power away from the court and give it back to the states. Or at least the states take the role in this, the natural role they have in the Constitution, and go with that. And he actually cites uh, Alexander Hamilton in this particular piece, which I found interesting, because Hamilton, of course, insisted during ratification, and many other people did too, the court would be the least influential arm of the federal government. It would have the least amount of power. Nowadays, it perhaps has the most amount of power. And that's because of political parties, which Klein addresses, but also because we've made the court a policy arm of the federal government, rather than simply a referee between the states. Okay, so the piece says, late in the lead-up to the 2020 presidential election, as Mitch McConnell rushed to replace Ruth Bader Ginsburg with Amy Coney Barrett, the left began pushing Joe Biden to endorse adding seats to the Supreme Court. Biden, in response, did what politicians do when faced with an issue they don't want to think about. He promised to create a commission to study the issue. That commission submitted its report in December 2021, and as far as I can tell, Biden's disinterest has been confirmed. For all the fury at the Supreme Court in recent weeks, the Biden administration doesn't seem to have mentioned the report or any of the options it raised. Perhaps that's just an admission of political reality. Democrats don't have the votes to change the court. But the Biden administration needs to change political reality, not just accept it. We, this, we need to change all this stuff. Political reality is not, is not suitable here, as Klein says. We need to change everything. See, the one thing about the left and the progressives is they never stop. They will go on the offensive for as long as they can go on the offensive. They will never stop. And that's the worst thing. I mean, I've said on this podcast, people need to say, no, shut up, right? But in, in particularly at the state and local level, but the, at, at the general government, the left never stops. So what you really do need in Washington, if we're going to say, let's vote people in that will do the right thing, you need a whole bunch of John Randolph's at Roanoke. You need the dissenters. You need the people that are uh, you know, representative. No. You just say no on everything. Every piece of legislation. There's no positive legislation that can come out of Congress nowadays. It's any good. No on everything. No, no, no. And it just needs to be no all the time. Your job to go to Congress is to say no to every piece of legislation that comes across your desk unless the bill is designed to cut uh, bureaucracy, when I say cut it, I mean eliminate it, cut the budget, cut everything that's unconstitutional, even in the defense budget, cut that too. Let's get rid of everything. 
right? That's the only way you're going to see uh, real change in Washington. And from all I can tell, nobody is really willing to do that except maybe a handful of people in the Congress. So no needs to be the key word. No, no, no. No, shut up, actually. Really. So that, that would be the important thing. The danger Democrats face in November is hopelessness and apathy among their base. Why turn out to vote if nothing will pass anyways, and if the Supreme Court will gut whatever slips through the Republican blockade? Democrats need to give their base something to vote for. One such answer might be a plan to repair the court, one that goes beyond restoring Roe v. Wade and demonstrates a deeper vision for reimagining America's political system in an era of crisis. Now look at the language he's using here. That's important. Reimagining. Restoring, reimagining. Reimagining is innovation. And if it's the antithesis of the entire system that was designed in 1787. And what do I mean by that? Well, I mean, this is what John Dickinson talked about in Philadelphia. We don't want to get something that's innovation. And those that were opposed to Madison's Virginia plan worried about innovation. Why? Because innovation brings about what we have now. And so, again, the answer to all this should be no. And it should never be considered by anyone that has half a brain to do any of this stuff that Ezra Klein is talking about here. That may require years, even decades of work. But if liberals need inspiration, they can look to the decades-long effort the right mounted to overturn Wade. Now, what, the thing about this is funny. It took decades. Yeah, decades of work. Why? Because the left controlled the court for so long. He's ignoring the entire politicization of the court, which he talks about in a minute, and how that actually happened. The left. The left is the group that politicized it, and now they're whining that the Republicans have finally figured out how to game the system and do the exact same thing. So for the next 40 or 50 years, the conservatives control it, and they undo all the nonsense the left did. That would be absolutely amazing. But of course, this back and forth really does need to be stopped. And the way to do it is just to say, okay, here's what we're going to do. Federalism. You want to really get at the court? Use the apparatus that's already in the Constitution, which is impeachment. Now, I know the left is talking about impeaching Clarence Thomas or impeaching Brett Kavanaugh or impeaching Amy Coney Barrett for what? Now, if you actually went back to 1803, this would be for politics. Or if you went back to 1801, I should say, <clears throat> this was actually on the table. Samuel Chase was impeached, but he wasn't convicted, and he was impeached because he was a political partisan on the bench. Now, if we went back to something like that, well then, okay, you want to start impeaching justices for being political hacks? Well, then I could say Sotomayor and Kagan need to be impeached too. All of them need to be impeached. And what they need to be impeached for is not being a... I mean, I don't think that the, the Dobbs decision was political at all. I could say that the New York pistol and rifle decision is political because of the 14th Amendment. What we really need to do is repeal the 14th Amendment. That would be a good start. The commission's report doesn't endorse any particular plan. Instead, over nearly 300 pages, it considers several plans and airs the arguments for and against them. At times, it's pathologically even-handed, even bordering on naïve. Quote, presidents may appoint justices for many reasons other than the hope or expectation that the justice will support the president's particular policy agenda or constitutional philosophy, it says. Pity the poor may in that sentence. No word so short should have to bear such weight. 
But in total, the report is a thorough and at times exciting tour through ways the court could be restructured. Exciting. This is exciting. I won't try to summarize them here. Instead, I'll lay out the way it left me as one reader thinking about court reform. Others, including commissioners beyond the re- behind the report, have come to very different and contradicting conclusions, which is a testament to the report's underlying fairness and breadth. In Federalist Number 78, Alexander Hamilton wrote that the judiciary has, quote, no influence either over either the sword or the purse, no direction either of the strength or the wealth of the society, and can take no active resolution whatever. It may truly be said to have neither force nor will, but merely judgment. Now, again, let's stop there and talk about Hamilton in 78. I agree with this. Right? And if you take originalist papers, I get into that. The founding generation sold the court on that it would do nothing. It wasn't a policy arm. It was the weakest branch of the government. And they didn't really even have to establish anything besides the Supreme Court. The real issue are all the appellate courts. You want to create, you want to solve the problem? Abolish the entire federal court system except for the Supreme Court. That's it. Let the state courts decide everything else. That's the way it should be designed. You could, the Republicans could run on this. Look, here's what we're going to do. We're going to abolish every single circuit court in America. Now, you could maybe leave uh, bankruptcy courts in place, but you can even let those go back to the states. The states will handle all this stuff. You want to uh, have an issue where... Uh, we have a constitutional crisis here. Well, then those things, if it's if it's a real federal issue, they can be appealed to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court can take it up or not. You don't have to have all these district courts, circuit courts, appell- I mean, you don't have to have any of that, right? It doesn't have to exist. The Congress could get rid of the entire federal court structure and just say, it's gone. All these people are out of jobs, and they got to go do something else. Go work for the state courts. This is exactly what the Jeffersonians would have done. And then the states would have blocked the ability for the, uh, for the uh, state court decisions to be appealed to the federal courts. Okay, so, I mean, there, there are other options out there. It's the Jeffersonian option, but nobody even, the Klein's not going to talk about that because you've got to have the federal courts. The debate over the Supreme Court tends to revolve around the word legitimacy. The fear is that the court will lose its legitimacy, whatever that means. But the word Hamilton uses is more interesting, judgment. <clears throat> I take the problem with the current Supreme Court to be that there is no reason to trust its judgment, and many reasons to mistrust it. The process for picking appointees is thoroughly politicized. The process by which seats come open and the court is refreshed is thoroughly politicized, save when death intervenes with a justice's preferred moment of retirement. Critical cases are decided again and again on party-line votes, making a hash of the idea that the court speaks as an institution or on behalf of the Constitution, or rather than as nine ideologically predictable political appointees. I mean, he's pointing out a real issue here. He, he's, the left is actually admitting what they've done to the whole system. They did this, right? Now they're complaining about it, which is so funny to me. Right? I mean, we, in some ways, you know, the, the one side of me just wants them to get, all their, get a dose of their own medicine for about three or four decades, and then we'll talk. As I argued last week, the court, like the rest of our political system, wasn't designed for an era of polit- polarized political parties. It's supposed to be a check on the other branches, not an amplifier of the power of the parties wield across them. Its problem is a mismatch between the political system for which it was designed and the political system we actually have. And so the question is, what might the court look like if it were designed for this era? What reforms would make the court's judgment more rather than less trustworthy? So then he goes on to say about court packing. He says, in my view, court packing, the idea that arguably launched the commission fails the test. That's not because adding justices would be a radical break from past practice. Adding and removing justices was common practice in the 1800s, partly as a way to manage the court's workload and partly as a way to control the court. 
1801, the Federalists cut the court from six justices to five, in part to deny Thomas Jefferson, who won the presidency but hadn't yet taken office an appointment. In 1802, Jefferson, Jefferson's Democratic Republicans restored the sixth seat, and in 1807 added another. In 1837, the court was boosted to nine justices. In 1863, Abraham Lincoln's Republicans added a tenth seat, in 1866, after Lincoln's assassination, they cut it back down to seven seats to block Andrew Johnson from making appointments. The court was restored to nine seats in 1869 when Ulysses S. Grant, a Republican, took the presidency. That's where it's sat ever since. FDR's court-packing effort in 1937, from this perspective, wasn't nearly the breach it's been made out to be, nor was it an outright failure. The campaign succeeded, he said, in, in cowing the court into embracing much of the New Deal. So that's what it was. See, the campaign succeeded because the left bullied the court into accepting the New Deal. It politicized the court. But it broods FDR politically, splitting his own party. Altering the court batting justices has since fallen into disrepute, though it's still done at the state level. Republicans added seats to the Arizona and Georgia state Supreme Courts in recent years. But you can't fix the court batting justices. You're shifting the balance of power by contributing to the underlying problem turning the court into an untrustworthy institution and setting off a cycle of reprisals with unknown consequences. If Democrats managed to pass a bill adding new justices, Republicans would match or exceed it as soon as they were restored to power, and on and on. Well, I agree with this. If Democrats add seats, why can't Republicans add seats? So if Democrats added, you know, five seats, Republicans can come in and add five more seats, and they could put the balance of power back in. You see, it's not, it's not the issue. What needs to happen is the entire federal court system needs to abolish, be abolished, and we need to have a return to real federalism. My gosh, the unknown ideal. The unknown ideal. See, the real issue at the core of all of this is nationalism again and again and again. And Ezra Klein doesn't seem to get it, nor does anyone on the left, really. I listened to Kevin Gutzman the other day in a, when I was doing a, a podcast with Tom Woods, and he said, you know, he was talking about a liberal professor he had. She said, he said she had never really considered that the court shouldn't be as political. Never considered it. This is a law professor. Never considered it when he was in, in law school. That's because they won't. For a solution to hold, it needs to be defensible beyond this moment in American politics. Many other ideas pass that test. Let's start with the easy one, term limits. So he says, look, what we need are term limits. If we could just have term limits. That would be a good idea. Why? Because it used to be justices were on the bench about 15 years. Now it's about 26 years. And uh, this would solve some of this problem, right? Justices retire when they want to. If they don't, I mean, Ginsburg died, so that, that just upset the left. But justices retire, retire when they want to, and so therefore... I mean, look at Breyer, he retires, you get a lefty to replace him. That's what he wanted. Right? So he retires during Biden's administration. If he hung on, well, then it could have been a Republican replacing him. We would have had an eight to two court, which would have been absolutely hilarious. He says lifetime appointments were intended to insulate the justices from politics. Instead, they become a driver of the court's politicization. Limiting justice to 18-year terms has collected a fair amount of bipartisan support over the years. He says in Texas it was part of this. And he says it also has the force of international practice behind it. International practice. So what we should do is look to uh, Great Britain. We should look to other world democracies and see about their system. This is what the left likes to do. This is what the Supreme Court, even justices on the court, have talked about. Looking to other countries for answers to our legal system. 
Bringing up Great Britain is not a bad idea because we have the Anglo-American tradition, but um, is this the real issue, though, is the federal system of the United States compared to other places. Great Britain doesn't have a federal system. And their court is purely political because that's how their constitution is, is, uh, is codified. Their court, they don't have a written constitution. So it's a totally different animal. He says this is a healthy politicization if you just if you just put term limits. And so presidents could expect a couple appointments per term. They could just get also Obama and, and Carter and, and Clinton only had a, you know, four people they got to put on the bench. But Republicans have all these people. So this would make it e this would make it even, right? Republicans and Democrats would be even. He says, but there's also a need to depoliticize the court and protect it from politics. It now seems unlikely that vacant seats can ever be filled when the White House and the Senate are controlled by opposing parties, raising the possibility of long periods of time in which the court is understaffed. Oh my gosh, imagine the horror. We don't have enough justices. We don't have enough people working for the court. The horror. In case you think Merrick Garland a one -off, is, is a one-off, McConnell has already said it's highly unlikely he'd let Biden fill a Supreme Court seat if Republicans retake the Senate in 2022. The commission has an interesting idea for that. If the Senate fails to act on or otherwise confirm two Supreme Court nominees in set amount of time, the deadlock could trigger a new process in which the chief judges of the Federal Court of Appeals would vote on the next nominee. Well, here's the thing. Get rid of that. We don't need the Federal Court of Appeals. We don't need that at all. We don't need layers of federal courts. It's stupid. And the other thing, this would, of course, all take constitutional amendments to do it, and nobody's going to, that's not going to happen, right? This would take a constitutional amendment to create all these layers of things to happen. More radical is the idea of a balanced bench. The commission does not discuss this idea at any length, save mostly to criticize it, but I think it's worth considering. So he says parties would then get to choose uh, justices, five justices each, and then the, the justices would get to choose five more, and it'd have to be unanimous consent. Well, that's just stupid. That would certainly take a constitutional amendment. All of this is just spitballing here. The real issue, Ezra Klein is skirting around, is politicization, but the real, the real solution to these problems is getting rid of the importance of the federal court system, number one, and returning all this to the states and letting the people of the states decide these things and also repealing the 14th Amendment. He says, a central question in any political system is how to balance power so all sides have an interest in the system's continued success. The problem in our system is that we're balancing the power of places rather than parties. Places rather than, see the problem is, he says, we get, we get parties now, places were what the founders thought about. We need, we'd have to balance parties now. The framers believed that politics of states would structure uh, our politics. Many considerations seem to place it beyond doubt that the first and most natural attachment of the people will be to the government of their respective states, wrote James Madison in Federalist Number 46. And so the Senate balances the power of states equally, and the structure of the Electoral College and the House gives rural areas a boost in political representation. Aha, see, here's the real issue for Ezra Klein. We're not thoroughly nationalist enough. We were just thoroughly nationalist. This is really at the, the, what he's complaining about. At the end of the piece, he tells you what he's complaining about, which is federalism. He's and Madison was right about this in Federalist 46. The politics of states. Now, what happened? We got the 17th Amendment. 
right? The direct election of senators. That created a situation with the Senate. So we have a national Senate now rather than a real federal Senate. But that's what the Senate was designed to do, to balance out the, the states and to prevent nationalization. It was the entire point of the system. Same thing with Electoral College. It was all designed to do that. Keep the states in the loop. And to thwart direct democracy. Right? I mean, it's, it's the whole point. And of course, having the states be more important than the, than the center was what everyone thought would happen. Because the center would have so little power, only over these specific enumerated things, then they wouldn't worry about education at the center. See, Klein's skipping what's really happened, which is the left has made everything centrally focused. And so when that doesn't work anymore, they complain about it. We need more centrally focused. But the framers were wrong. Political parties are our primary political attachments. And that's been true for decades. Perhaps the Supreme Court should be a place that balances their power rather than another venue through which they compete for dominance. Well, the states would be more important if people stopped nationalizing everything. Right? You cut the power, you take the whole federal court system out, you cut the power of the general government, and people would pay attention to the states. Taking parties seriously means recognizing who is left out by party competition, too. Many Americans loathe both parties and find themselves utterly unrepresented by the current nomination process. There should be a path to the Supreme Court that does not rely on proving yourself a loyal foot soldier decade after decade to the party likeliest to sponsor you, a path that relies on building the best reputation for judgment among peers of all political persuasions. The balanced bench idea would create that path, too. I can think of many alternative ways to structure a balanced bench. For one thing, it should make the entrance of New parties, should they arise, easier. Perhaps any party with more than 15% of the popular vote in a presidential election or more than 10% of the seats in the House should be given a berth on the court. For now, the proposal is a provocative sketch rather than a fully worked through plan, but provocations are what we need. No, this is a stupid approach from a stupid person who is a nationalist. And this is innovations. And what do we know about innovations going all the way back to 70? The left is always going to be innovators, and all the innovations are really going to be crackpot nonsense. I could use other terms as a family show, though. We treat the creaking, cracking structure of American government with a strange mix of awe and fatalism. Either we think it's somehow heretical to question, or we're so pessimistic about the prospect of change that we don't even bother. I don't know. See, this is, again, he's showing you who he is. It's creaking, cracking. The left is the one who's completely screwed it up, right? If we just had federalism, it wouldn't be creaking and cracking. The center would work just fine, like it's designed to do. But what's creaking and cracking is their nationalist creation on the ruins of the original federal constitution. That's what's creaking and cracking. All that the Dobbs decision did is actually say, all right, look, we're just going back to what the original constitution says here. And this is what it's supposed to be. That's not creaking and cracking. That's saying this is what the constitution is supposed to do. And you've distorted it. So your nationalist utopia is creaking and cracking. Not the Constitution and not the original structure of the government. But to dive into the history of court reform as the Commission does, it's reminded that the Supreme Court was imagined by human minds and made and remade by human hands. We honor the idea of the American experiment, but we have lost the spirit of experimentation that made it work. It wasn't an experiment. Uh, it was based on real things, which was federalism. We did not discover the ideal structure for the Supreme Court once and for all in 1869. 
Our forerunners did their best for the times in which they lived. It is time we did ours. But, of course, the real issue is 1869, we have nationalization really taking hold. Go back before that, there was always a resistance to nationalization. The real issue is always nationalization. All right. Hope you enjoyed this episode of the Brian McClanahan Show. I'll see you tomorrow for the next one. See you then.